Greetings, I'm Mel Fabregas, bringing you a very important message, especially for those of you whose Veritas subscription was cancelled by one of our payment processors some time ago. It took us a few weeks of hard labor to procure a new payment processing partner and a lot of coding. But, by popular demand, we now offer a payment option that only requires a credit card and no PayPal account. The new system is integrated into our secure website and does not send you to another site. Just click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com, enter your credit card information, and you will receive your login immediately. I want to welcome many of you back to your Veritas family. Thank you. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Are UFOs time machines from the future? Tonight's special guest cautiously examines the premise that extraterrestrials may instead be our distant human descendants, using the anthropological tool of time travel to visit and study us in their own hominem evolutionary past. Dr. Michael P. Masters, a professor of biological anthropology specializing in human evolutionary anatomy, archaeology, and biomedicine, explores how the persistence of long-term biological and cultural trends in human evolution may ultimately result in us becoming the ones piloting these disc-shaped craft, which are likely the very devices that allow our future progeny to venture backward across the landscape of time. Moreover, these extratempestrials are ubiquitously described as bipedal, large-brained, hairless, human-like beings who communicate with us in our own languages and who possess technology advanced beyond, but clearly built upon our own. These accounts, coupled with a thorough understanding of the past and modern human condition, point to the continuation of established biological and cultural trends here on Earth, long into the distant human future. Greetings from your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Dr. Michael P. Masters is a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. He received a PhD in anthropology from The Ohio State University in 2009, where he specialized in human evolutionary anatomy, archaeology, and biomedicine. His new book, Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon, challenges readers to consider new possibilities while cultivating conversations about our ever-evolving understanding of time and time travel. And directly from Butte, Montana, I would like to welcome Dr. Michael P. Masters. Hello, Dr. Masters, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. By the way, may I call you Mike? Absolutely. Thank you. Well, I saw you on TV, as I mentioned before, and I knew I had to bring you on, and I'm pleasantly surprised how recently this topic is making some serious rounds on mainstream media, and it's no longer being treated like a joke. Why do you think that is? 
Well, that's a good question. I think there's been a lot of different things going on. Um, importantly, there's been more activity in the U.S. Uh, the government's come out with some various reports about changing different things regarding how these sightings are reported um, with the AA tip program and um, just more information coming to light about that. And, and, and just, I think, uh, a general culture of awareness and interest has been developing around this subject. It's been there for a long time. There's no denying that the subject matter um, you know, has it's been a part of our cultural knowledge for a while, but it seems like there is some growing momentum and consensus around uh, the notion that this is a real thing and should be taken seriously and should be studied. So how did you come up with your conclusion that UFOs or IFOs, rather, may be time-traveling machines from the future? Well, it started uh, when I was very young. I was about eight years old. And uh, I learned of uh, an encounter that my father had. He was uh, a veterinarian in a very dark part of Ohio, uh, Amish country, sort of in the northeast quadrant of the state. And it's very dark because you know, Amish people don't use electricity. Um, and he had an experience where he saw a craft uh, along with someone who was riding along with them that night by chance. So there were two individuals that witnessed the same thing. But uh, they came over a hill and saw this craft across the horizon. Um, initially, it was just this big glowing orb of light, and then it darted toward their truck and sat there only a couple hundred meters away and then went back across the horizon and shot straight up into the sky. And um, hearing him tell that story and then seeing the the cover of this book called Communion by Whitley Stryber that I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with. Oh, sure. There is this this archetypal alien image, um, you know, the big head, the small face, the big eyes, kind of a slender body build, but very human-looking form in general. And I just remember kind of having this flash of of awareness, so I guess you could call it, or at least interest, where I, I imagined in, in a chimpanzee-like form, our modern human form, and then this uh, alien-type form all together. And just kind of started me down a path of, of inquiry to try to find out more about that, to try to understand if we could potentially be related, if they could just simply be us from the future. And, and more recently, as I've been doing research for the book, and especially after it was published and talking with people, uh, I've learned that I'm not alone in this, that there's a lot of uh, well-respected scholars and, and people who have uh, even you know, had encounters, experiencers who have stated this same thing. So I think it's, um, there's definitely a case to be made. And the purpose of writing the book was to build a case around this, not just the idea. The idea, I think, speaks for itself to a lot of people, but to really dive deep into it and present a multidisciplinary, multifaceted set of arguments that help build this case more tangibly and more scientifically. I'll confess something here that I haven't said before. Some listeners may have heard this before. Over a decade ago, when I started this program, there's a case that I haven't been able to disclose because I haven't been authorized to release the the photographs because the person, I'm not getting into details, but it has to do with government censorship, if you will. But I have those images, and I have lots of text and, 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 and writings from this person. I met him in person, and he told me that these craft and the beings and the lights that are shown on the pictures that I have are actually 
time travelers. It's us from the future. And that yeah. was the very first time I ever heard of this concept. But what you just said about communion and the cover page, when you put a, a chimpanzee and then fast forward, if we are to believe in evolution, I know some people don't believe it, but if you are to just morph, just like that video from Michael Jackson years ago, you may have remembered, <laughs> right? I do, yeah. And then you see this gray alien. It, it's theoretically possible that this could be it, and it's us. Alcan's Razor tells me that it's more, it's uh, it's easier to think that this is the case as opposed to thinking of these beings coming from another planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I also shave with Occam's razor. I think it's important to do so. And especially with a, a, a such a obscure, mysterious phenomenon like this. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's not a belief system. We, it's easily testable. Evolution is a very testable hypothesis and it's evolved itself into becoming an accepted law in, in biology. And, and really, if we if we do morph those things, that's the main thing that I do in my own research is look at evolutionary anatomy and, and how our morphology has changed over evolutionary time. And, and back six to eight million years ago, we weren't a chimpanzee per se. We have a common ancestor with the modern chimpanzees. But at that time, we had big elongated faces, large eye orbits relative to our eyes and a low sloping forehead because there wasn't much frontal development of our, our brains. And and then move forward through all of the Australopithecines and all of the different early Homo and Homo erectus and, and the modern humans. And you can just see those two main changes taking place where our faces have retracted and become reduced. They've gotten smaller and our brains have expanded uh, both mediolaterally, meaning left to right, but also forward. And they've come out over top of our eyes. And in fact, we're the only mammal on planet earth who has that craniofacial configuration or what's known as a bow plan in which our brains sit right on top of our eyes and our face is retracted and tucked underneath them. So, so yeah, we can look at this long history of hominin evolution in our craniofacial anatomy specifically and see this continual change from those early hominin forms to modern humans. And then if you project those forward, regardless of what situation may happen, whether we live in space or underground or on Mars or whatever, all of those things are irrelevant because these same dominant trends, if continued into the future, are very likely to result in something similar to this this typical gray alien form. Well, let's dive, well, by the way, I, I really want to discuss the elongated skulls later, Paracas, and the fact that they're all over the place, not just in Peru. Well, mm -hmm. let's dive into the topic. You say, quote, if reports of close encounters with UFOs and aliens can be understood as instances of intertemporal interaction. They could potentially offer up a wealth of information about the future state of our species, quote-unquote. Please explain. Well, in writing this book, what I like to do a lot is think about my own situation in modern times as an anthropologist. And, and in doing digs throughout the world, um, you get you get to hold in your hands things that other humans held in their hands a hundred thousand years ago or, or two million years ago and and try to imagine the world through their eyes but if we were to visit them if we had the technology to go back and study them in person and conduct a, a much deeper analysis of their their life way their culture their biology 
uh, the soft tissue anatomy that we lack today because we're left to work with fossilized teeth and bones. And if we had access to all of that, we could learn so much more. And as a paleoanthropologist who specializes in hominin evolution and, and the evolution of tools and culture and things like that, I often think about what I could learn from them. But then I also think about how much they could learn from me. If they had that awareness, if they understood that I was from the future, they would instantly get a snapshot in time of the period that I come from. And they'd be able to see that we lose our hair and that our crania grow larger and our faces get smaller and we have much more sophisticated technology. And that same thing is applicable in looking at our future brethren. If they are indeed coming back through time to study us, we would be gifted a snapshot in time of whatever period they're an ambassador of. And most likely, once this technology is developed, it'll continue to persist, and we're likely seeing individuals from different time periods. But each time that happens, we're visited now and in the recent past, we're perhaps granted a glimpse into our own human future. So if we do take this phenomenon seriously, and if this is actually what's happening, then it does give us some insight into the future of humanity. One thing that impresses me about a lot of the anthropo anthropological items found are skulls with great-looking teeth. That's mm -hmm. not the case today. I wonder what they did to keep their teeth that way. Not all of them. Is it that they died very young, or was there something else? Perhaps no sugar and a lot of the things that we are exposed to? Yeah, you hit two out of the three on the head there. It's that they didn't live long enough to... Um, to develop dental caries or cavities and other dental problems for the most part. Um, and also that they didn't have the high sugar, high, carbo, high car carbohydrate diets. But also a third important part is that they wore their teeth down very quickly. They were eating things that got rid of those cusps in their teeth and all the pits and grooves where food can get stuck so that bacteria forms and creates acidity and then rots away the, the enamel and dentin. So they were... It was a combination of those three things that helped to keep their teeth relatively in good shape. After agriculture, a lot of those things changed. We started eating softer food. Our teeth didn't wear down as fast. We had more sugars in our diet. And you do start to see more lesions and dental caries in the teeth and even the jaw. I remember in doing my dissertation research, I came across a skull where almost the entire left side of the mandible, the jaw, was completely worn away by an abscess, and it must have been tremendously painful. Um, we also have evidence that one of the best-known Homo erectus skeletons, KNMWT 15,000, or what's known as the Nerakotome boy, uh, also died of a tooth infection. It's very likely that he got a tooth infection, and it, it spread to the rest of his body and killed him at a relatively young age. He was about 11 years old. But other than those few instances, for the most part, yeah, that's a, a very good observation. They had tremendously healthy dentition. Now, this is a speculative question. Many people claim that they have interacted with beings from God knows from where. But could it be that these beings may say that as opposed to saying, I'm a time traveler? Just think about it. If we had the ability to time travel, you and I, and when, let's say, to the Gettysburg Address, would we say we're time travelers? I think we would say that, uh, you know, we would experience the moment, learn from it, and we would try to mm -hmm. mix with the population in order to not call attention to ourselves. But how do we, how do these beings, which have a wide range of, of appearances, according to two witnesses, are you implying they're from Earth? And if so, 
What caused them to change so much? Nuclear war, physical evolution. What do you think? Well, that, that brings up a, a, a very interesting point. And it's something I've thought about a lot because it, a lot of it comes down to at what point would they have been coming from and where would they go in their past? And you're right. If we went back to the Gettysburg Address, we could you know, beat somebody up and take their clothes and uh, blend in remarkably well because we haven't changed that much over the last couple hundred years. If we're talking about beings that come from 50, 60,000 years in the future or 100,000 years in the future, there's going to be things that make that much more difficult. They're not just going to be able to wear our clothes and blend in. So, yeah, you do have a lot of reports where people are told they come from this star system over here. And and that very well could be a redirect. Um, it's very likely that they're instructed not to divulge when they're from, if if they are indeed from our future, because of the fact that this isn't something that's common knowledge. It's not the dominant mantra, and it, it may complicate things to some extent with regard to intertemporal interaction, which I discuss quite a bit in the book and some of the later chapters. Um, but yeah, I think, and, and also another thing to keep in mind is that we wouldn't really be incentivized to go back into our recent past. We're likely to still have records of what happened in pictures and video that we could draw from, and especially as well as we archive things. But, but as you point out, there are certainly things that could happen. There could be some sort of global war, nuclear war, uh, the earth becomes inhabitable, and perhaps a lot of those things are lost so that we do eventually become incentivized to go back and try to rediscover or even more recent past. And you could also have a situation in which much more evolved or more distant descendants could pick somebody up from even 100, 200 years in the future, even before we have time travel technology. But because they're able to stop at different times, perhaps pick someone up and take them to a previous point in the past. So, so even if the technology, you know, it's not going to be developed next week or anything like that, but even because of the nature of time and time travel, it could be possible to have interactions with people from different periods spread out through the future and even throughout our past, um, simply because this technology and the presence of a time machine, there really is no true structure between past, present, and future. There isn't that same linear time as we see this thing coming before this, which comes before this. So there, it really opens up a lot of interesting questions and different avenues for investigating really what that would be like and what potentialities could arise from the development of this technology at really any point in our evolutionary future. We may not have changed physically that much or biologically, but languages, even yeah. my mm -hmm. daughter, I mean, you remember years, she's 12, but a few years ago, I played some Movies from the 1930s and 40s, of course, this new generation, they just can't watch black and white. But that was not the case with her. What she was saying is, I'm having a hard time understanding their English. Yeah, It's a little bit different. Imagine what could happen in 100, 200 years. How would you be able to mix yourself in the crowd 200 years ago? Right. Oh, that would be, it would take a lot of really esoteric knowledge of that specific linguistic group. There's no doubt about it. I remember having to read the um, the original version of On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, which was written in 1859 or published in 1859. And it was almost unintelligible. 
it, it really wasn't that long ago that he wrote it. And I understand all of the concepts that were being discussed. Yeah, it was. It was very Shakespearean. And, and just the, the, the simple words, the, the prepositions are, you know, similar, but, but the dictation and the way things were said back then was so different. So you're right. It would take someone with, um, access to records or listening to the way things were spoken back then and very early recordings, if they're available, I think to really practice that. And we, we do that today when we learn another language, we, one of the best ways is to immerse yourself in that culture and to really pick up the nuances of people's speech in those cultures. But I think if you were really trying to blend in, um, or even to be able to communicate with people that you were, you know, doing more of a, a biomedical examination on or interacting with in a limited capacity, you'd still need basic linguistic skills to comfort them and, and to, to be able to tell them it'll be okay. And that is a very commonly reported thing in these encounters, uh, close encounters of the fourth and fifth kind specifically, where they're actually communicating with our extratempestrial descendants. They, they must have knowledge of our language. And I think that's one of the important lines of evidence that they are indeed us from the future because beings from a different planet wouldn't have this readily available historical record to draw from. It would be much harder to learn the language of a group that had evolved on a different planet. And who's to say we'd even have the same physical mechanisms for vibrational sensitivity or to be able to read something with eyes. Um, those two things are likely to evolve on any planet. Um, eyes have evolved, I think, 17 times independently on this planet, and vibrational sensitivity is likely to do so too, simply because you need to know if there's something around you that could harm you or potentially that you could harm to eat. Those are very important things. So, But outside that, the symbolic language that we've developed, the, the communication that we have, our verbal speech, it, who's to say that that would ever happen again, especially on a planet that happens to be close enough and exist at the same time with the right level of advancement that we would have the ability for mutual understanding. So I think it's important to, to keep that aspect of these encounters in mind. If they're talking to us in our own languages, there's a very good chance that they had access to those languages because they're a part of their own cultural past. And that's something else I want to discuss later. Could they have some quote-unquote ambassadors here who are learning and they go back to where they come from and teach those that the languages? But not to deviate from the subject, but I don't get to talk to anthropologists that often. But I'm thinking <laughs> of two, two aspects. Number one, natives around the world who used to have long hair. And they say that the long hair is used almost like an antenna. And as you were saying, the vibration, vibrational sensitivity, hunters in the past. Um, also, I'm thinking of the that earthquake and tsunami that happened years ago in, in Indonesia. One tribe survived. Only one tribe survived. Everybody, except for one person who was a paraplegic who could not summon help. Do you think that we have de-evolved somehow and some of these vibrational sensitivities and other abilities that we were gifted in the past have the evolved to the point that we, they're dormant and we just don't use them anymore? Domesticated in a way. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. I, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of that. It, it makes a lot of sense though, how, I mean, you think about the, the, the long ears of hounds. They, they wouldn't really help them hear, but they help them smell. It pushes the smell toward uh, their renarium and their nose and helps them capture that smell. But yeah, it would make sense that long hair 
would sort of act as a catchment for sound as well. That's that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that we've lost as a result of domesticating ourselves really since the, the origin of agriculture in the Neolithic going back about 10,000, 11,000 years ago. And I, I definitely think there's a lot of intuition that was lost, a, a lot of just being in touch with nature and, and hearing and listening and, and feeling those things around you. When I, I I'm a, a, an avid hunter, it's where we get our meat. And um, one thing I learned in the very slow process of learning how to be an effective hunter, because it's not easy out here in Montana, it's a lot of hiking and waiting and listening and watching and uh, then more hiking up and down mountains. But one of the main things that's proven to be extremely beneficial, especially in bow hunting at close range, is smell. We, we've lost our sense of smell or, or compared to our, our hominoid cousins. We've lost it to a large extent. We've sacrificed our smell in favor of a larger brain, uh, not just that part of the brain, the olfactory ball, but our nostrils face down. And if you look at all other primates, and almost every other mammal, their nostrils come out, and like I mentioned, they're wet, and they flare out toward the side. But we sacrificed our noses and our sense of smell to grow these bigger brains, and and that's great. But I find when I'm out in the woods, I, I know so much more about what's around me just by opening my nose and and, and sniffing the winds and, and listening very closely. It's a really a, a full sensory experience to be out there, not just so I know where the animals are, but so I don't get eaten by a bear or a mountain lion is a big part of it too. But I think you're right. We've, we've sacrificed a lot of things and, and that intuition, that relationship we used to have with nature and, and really with other humans, I think has been tarnished to some extent or at least changed. There's benefits to it as well. But our, our domestication of ourself has, has really changed a lot about humans. And I think, I think there's definitely things that could be learned from digging deeper into that. And especially with regard to consciousness and and this aspect of, of these IFO reports where there's telepathic communication, how, how does that happen? It's gotta be some sort of energy, some sort of vibrational sensitivity that exists outside of vocalized speech. So at, at what point in our future will we start to have that ability or to at least be able to recognize that there is something there that we should look into more that is different skills that we have or abilities that we have that are looked at now as being, you know, only associated with crazy people or psychics or empaths or whatever, but potentially that could be the way that we communicate in the distant future. So I think there's a lot to be learned. We, we could look toward our past, as you mentioned, looking at Native American groups and, and other indigenous groups throughout the world, um, but also potentially looking toward the future as well. I think you hit the nail on the head of what you just said, that we are losing these abilities. I mean, I, how many children are there that they see things or say things that to parents might sound like crazy? And they <laughs> shut down and eventually those abilities just go away. And yeah. some of these people who are truly, not the front ones, but there are some people who truly can see the future or can sense what you and I cannot. Mm -hmm. Those things have happened. Is that part of the, the evolution process? I, I, it's not something I can know from where we sit in time currently, but I, I do think it is. I, I think there are abilities that we have within us now. And like you said, certain people 
uh, are more in tune with those. Certain people are able to glimpse things in the future or to have uh, a deeper relationship with their consciousness, whether it be through ge- dreams or an energy relationship. And and I, I really think that's one of the, the, the last big questions facing humanity is what is what is consciousness? How, how does it relate to the, the neurological, the biological components of our brain? I actually, um, it's funny we're talking about this just yesterday. I, um, entered an informal agreement with another PhD to actively research this and, and make it the focus of, of the next book is, is these sorts of energy aspects of, of consciousness and our understanding of, of dreams, deja vu, um, collective consciousness, telepathy. I think there's a lot to learn there, but unfortunately, much like the UFO phenomenon, it's been tainted by stigma and it's not something that you can just write a grant to study or tell all your colleagues, Hey, I'm going to study telepathy now because you get the same sort of response that you do and saying, I'm going to study aliens now. Um, but, but hopefully I've, I've been fortunate. I've seen a tremendous amount of support in publishing this book amongst my academic colleagues. And I think all it takes is opening the book to see that it's not just a bunch of unfounded claims and rampant speculation. It is really rooted in these different disciplines that I draw from uh, using modern knowledge and a number of different important disciplines to build a case around this. And I think if it's approached cautiously, many of these aspects of of energy and vibration um, could really give us a much deeper understanding of how our minds work. It's, it's a big question that you see all the time. There, there's been a lot of shows in the recent past on a number of well-respected uh, outlets like PBS, the Discovery Channel, and um, a, a lot of neuros, neuroscientists studying these questions. And I think one thing that's often overlooked is is the less tangible components of it. We can look at the macroanatomy of the brain. We can do functional MRI studies, but but what is this more ethereal aspect of our consciousness? How do we study that? And I think we can still develop testable theories around that. And one of the main things I'd like to do as part of this next book project is do that, is to really look at, at, at how we perceive time and the world around us and how that relates to to our, our consciousness and potentially even the ability to use our brains to communicate at some point in the future. But there, there's a lot we don't know now. And the only way we're going to know is by studying it and by talking about it and by getting past the stigma that surrounds it. It's incredible how you're opening your horizons as an anthropologist. You're taking it to the next level. But if we had a chance to time travel, I would personally want to take somebody like you, an anthropologist, because let's say I wanted to go to to ancient Egypt, you would definitely connect more dots than, say, me, because I don't have the expertise that you do. But how do you, how would, let me just rephrase the question, how would you use it, time travel, to gain a much deeper understanding of our own past as an anthropologist? Oh, my God. I would I would love that opportunity. It would be amazing to me. I've spent my entire academic career studying the past, and what better way to do that than to be there? there? There's no better way to get the amount of data that that we would need to really truly understand not just the material culture left behind that we investigate through archaeology or 
the morphological traits, the biological traits, the soft tissue things we infer from the hard tissue and the environment and the behaviors that we try to put together based on environmental variables. If we could just see it, oh, it'd be, it'd be amazing. I, and I'm not alone in that. Um, any anthropologist, I'm sure, has uttered those same words at some point in their careers. Just what if? What if we had a time machine? We could know so much more. And, and it's unfortunate if, if anthropologists that are aware of this research dismiss it outright because it does involve aliens, because um, it is a testable hypothesis, as I've mentioned before, and it is something that they themselves have certainly thought about. What if we could just go back and look and, and pick them up and, and test many of our hypotheses that we hold so dear? We could instantly answer so many of them and, and have direct evidence to support them or reject ones that were inaccurate uh, if we had that technology. And, and I often think what period I would go back to, um, I've spent a lot of time studying our Australopithecine ancestors that lived about three, three and a half million years ago. But I'm also really interested in the dawn of culture when we first started to develop stone tools that throughout their evolutionary history have given us all of these things, the computers, the phones that we use, it, sawzalls, power drills, any and everything that we use is the direct descendant of those first stone tools about 3.3 million years ago. And it set in motion this long, continuous, unbroken chain of evolving and more complex technology. So I, I think I personally would be really interested in seeing some of those early developments, really knowing when we started that and how it started and what was the first time Somebody thought, I'm going to break this stone and use it to smash open some bones to get the marrow or to kill my neighbor who was sleeping with my wife or whatever it was <laughs> that they decided that that tool was needed for. Um, we could learn so much about intent and meaning and symbolism associated with these things instead of just having to guess, you know, why did Neanderthals bury their dead? We, we see that they did. We have the archaeological evidence that they did. But we can't ask questions like why. We can't know the answer to those questions. We can come up with valid theories, but we'd, we'd instantly be able to, to test those. So, yeah, as an anthropologist, I would, I would wholeheartedly embrace the opportunity to do so. And this is why my imagination flies. What I think of, you remember of the HS tape, and you see something and you wanted to just rewind it. Imagine mm -hmm. if time travel technology allowed you, you see a, a skeleton, And of course, you want nuclear and mitochondrial DNA to analyze it, but you don't have it. Imagine mm -hmm. if you had a machine that allows you to go back in time to the point where that person died and see exactly what happened. And you could change the future that way. Well, yeah, you, you definitely get a deeper understanding. Whether or not you could maybe avert their death or change the course of events is a, a, a touchier subject. And there's, it's been one that's been debated heavily in physics and continues to be. Um, the broad consensus is that we can't change the past, that in going back to the past, anything that we would have done has already been done before we left, simply because we're returning from a future time. So there's a, an inherent self-consistency that exists across these different Um, places within what physicists refer to as block time. But we could certainly observe, we could see anything that we did wouldn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily change anything. It would just 
become a part of what was already going to be a part of that future. Um, so we can definitely interact with the past, but, but the word change, it's, it's difficult because that implies that there was already some sort of timeline, that there was already a future that was laid out. And then by you being there, you create an alternate future. And, and that's, there's not a lot of evidence for that. Rather, it's just that, that you were a part of that past and always will be, always have been, even before you left. You may have not had knowledge of that, but if it's something in the recent past, say five, ten years ago, you very well might. But going back into the deep past, it's, it's correcting, it's fixed, it's already there. It didn't necessarily change anything, but rather remain self-consistent with what had already and always been done. And this is a question that a lot of us who are interested in the time travel topic always want to ask, just like the TV series French, you know, alternate, alternate world. If we go back in time, are we going back to our time or are we accessing a parallel world that's happening right now? Yeah, that's that's a big question. The the multi-worlds interpretation and interdimensional aspects has, has brought up quite a lot. Um, currently, we don't have any proof that other dimensions exist beyond the four that we know. If they do and they exist at the edge of our universe, if there's multiple universes, you, you have a situation in which two things. One, that universe is very, very far away. If it's actually beyond our universe and it's connected as part of this long chain of universes that all are similar or different or have different properties, it, you, you run into a problem where the same limitations that exist with visiting a different solar system or even a different galaxy that are flying away from each other at tremendous speed, these are even farther away than that, at the very edge of what we can see in the background radiation of our own universe. And another problem, secondly, is that they may have not just a different um, distance from their sun or distant different gravity, as you might have in a different solar system, but they could have entirely different physical properties. It could be different laws of physics that don't apply in our universe. So so yeah, the idea of different dimensions, different universes, it's brought up a lot. But if, if we are going to maintain a parsimonious explanation, if we are going to take Occam's razor and approach this in the context of the simplest explanation, it would seem to be that we are still operating within the same three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, but just different periods of it. So in the same way that if you go to sit down on a, a crowded subway in a seat that's open 20 minutes ago, an hour ago, that same seat may have been occupied by someone, but you don't have to worry about sitting on someone's lap because you can see at that moment in space time, there isn't someone sitting there. Um, but, but we don't oftentimes think in these, these terms of, of the same space, but at different times. So in this same way, projecting it much forward, fast forwarding the VHS tape, we could be in the same space as our distant extratempestrial descendants who have this time travel technology at a place 20,000 years, 50,000 years in the future, all operating in the same space that is America, that is Earth here at this same time and place, but just at a different time, a different region of space time, a different 
slice of block time or in landscape time, as it's referred to by physicists. So I think it's important to, to still acknowledge that, that they can exist here. We just don't see them because they exist at a different time that's separate from where we are now in the same way that we could sit in that seat on the subway. We can sit here in this place on earth simply because we don't have to share it with those that came before. They're all dead. Those that come much later because they don't exist yet. Um, we occupy this time right here and now. Um, but bringing in different universes, different dimensions, especially because we don't really have uh, concrete evidence of them. Many argue that it's not even possible to derive evidence because of limitations in our own physical universe. But I, I do think that, that it's something that should be explored. It definitely shouldn't be outright dismissed, but it does kind of get away from the principle of parsimony to some extent. What a great term, extratempestral. Did you coin the term? I think so. I, I didn't really think I had. And then somebody mentioned it recently and, and did a bunch of research uh, unbeknownst to me and said, yeah, I guess that's yours. I couldn't find any indication of that ever being used. So I guess so. Yeah. Because what do you, again, I love Occam's Racer when I think of somebody mentioning extraterrestrials from outside this planet, I tend to see extratempestral from the future. It, mm -hmm. it makes more sense to me. But if you had the ability to time travel, when and where, where would you, where you would go? Um, I, I think, hang on, before I get to that, I would like to mention another fun thing about extratempestrial that really should have dawned on me much earlier, but didn't, is that we can still use ET. It doesn't change ET at all. The abbreviation uh, right. is still the same. It just changes that tear, Earth with Tom uh, time. Um, but ET is still there. I, I just wanted to throw that in real quick. I, I realized that a couple weeks ago, and I was like, huh, that's fun. We can still say ET. Um, I, I have been thinking more recently that I would like to go to the future. I told you that I'd like to check out the early advent of stone tools and, and culture, but but really I've spent my entire life studying the past. And if I had the ability to travel through time, I think I would really like to see the future and especially to find out if this extratempestrial model is accurate. Um, like I said before, it is testable. All we have to do is persist into the future, and at some point we should eventually become them. Or even if we kill ourselves off, we, we've still tested the model. Um, there's no one left to know, but it has been tested. So I think it would be fun to just go see, find out, uh, see if we have. I guess that's somewhat paradoxical because to go do that, it would require a time machine, which would mean that there must be time machines in the future. So... I don't know. I kind of uh, worked myself into a weird circular reasoning situation there. But um, it, it would be fun to see what we look like. It would be fun to learn more about that future state. If we are catching glimpses of them and if we are seeing bigger heads and bigger eyes and smaller faces and we still have the habitual upright locomotion, all of those things indicate they are human. But if we could really see that if I could see that, especially as someone who studies morphology and, and human culture, I, I think I would go forward instead of back. This is why this conversation is fascinating because it really opens your mind 
to places where you don't even think exist. You go into mm-hmm. the future, seeing if we are actually heading to a pre- precipice. Are we on the right track? All those things that you can ponder. But if you think time travel exists in the future, when do you think that technology becomes available? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, again, it's complicated by a couple factors. One, we don't really have much incentive to go to a recent time in the past. And if that's the case, we wouldn't really expect to see these devices that have the form uh, to allow for the function of backward time travel until a point at which it's far enough in the future that we become interesting again. So that could be a potential source of bias if you think about it, because even if we did have this technology in the next two to 200 years to say a thousand years, would we still be interesting now and in 2020 per se, would we expect to see them coming back a thousand years to visit us? And the fact that they are confused for extraterrestrial beings with a separate evolution, it makes sense. They're coming from the sky. They're always seen in the sky above us. And especially in prehistoric times, they would naturally assume that they came from these stars that are still not well understood. Uh, there's origin myths that center on what they are, why they're there, how they got there. But they're still not something that's fully understood especially with regard to what they actually are, what we understand now from astrophysics. But it it makes sense why they have been considered beings from a different planet. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. I guess um, I I kind of forgot what the question was. That's okay. That's okay. This happens with this topic. But you're neither a ufologist nor a conspiracy theorist. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, do do remind me what what the question was though, because I I hate leaving. It's like when you scratch uh, one of your ankles, but then the <laughs> other one itches, and you have to scratch it even though it didn't itch until you scratched the first. Sure, I'll thing. ask you again then. If you think time travel exists in the future, when do you think that technology oh, becomes yeah. available? That's what it was. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole there and lost my train of thought. That's okay. Um, I'll take a stab in the dark. Why not? This is purely speculation. I honestly and obviously have no way of knowing, but I think just based on the tremendous rate of change in our technology and culture, that it it could potentially be, um, I'd say maybe in the next two to 5,000 years, potentially. I don't know. It's going to take some dramatic changes in material sciences, the the centrifugal forces, the the electromagnetic force, gravitational force are all going to require a craft that's far beyond any that we have today. But I, I don't know. I don't want to sell short human innovation either. We have an amazing ability to put our mind to things and solve problems and accomplish things in pretty short periods of time. And like I said, that's accelerating. So yeah, I'll throw it out there. Um, maybe two to five possibly 10,000 years. But isn't this a bit, let me play devil's advocate for a moment, a bit uh, conventional wisdom. I remember when I was a child, I had a cousin who was an aerospace engineer. And I had the question back then. I sat down with him and I said, do you think extraterrestrials, and back then I didn't know the term extratemporal or I would have brought it up. (laughs) But I said, do you think they have made it 
all the way here? And he said, absolutely not. And I said, how are you so certain? He said, because the close, and he started going by the closest are Alpha Centauri's, you know, two, three, whatever light years away. And if they had the craft, they would be plastered on the ceiling of that craft. But aren't we thinking like humans and perhaps 500 years ago, if I told you, we'll be driving cars, we'll be flying planes, nobody would have believed you. Theoretically, could there be technology that could pierce time and space to the point that we can actually get there in a minute as opposed to in a million years? Well, there are still limits to the speed at which we can travel. Um, that's that's not something that I think we can just outright dismiss. It, it's about 300,000 miles per, 300,000 kilometers per second, rather. Um, the, the laws of physics would seem to show that that is an actual physical barrier. And, and Einstein showed this early on, special relativity, that anything with mass, the inertial forces reach a point of infinity the closer you get to that. So any craft that had mass, and especially a large mass with a lot of fuel for travel and potentially individuals on board, no matter where they are in the universe, that would seem to be a somewhat ubiquitous limit on interstellar travel and especially outside of galaxies. I don't know if uh, there's any real logic for how that could happen given the rate at which they're flying apart from each other. Um, you're right. The, the same argument that I just made that human ingenuity is unbounded could absolutely be applied to that. And I, I don't deny that. There, there, are, there have been things proposed already, wormholes, uh, warp drive, hyperdrive, and those have potential um, to connect different regions of space-time in something that wouldn't take hundreds of thousands of years, but they, they're currently theoretical. In fact, warp drives is, um, I quote someone as calling it an idea zombie in my book, um, a, a well-known astrophysicist who gets asked that question a lot and who apparently is really annoyed by it uh, based on the interview that I quoted him from. Um, but outside of that, you know, maybe there's things in our future that we don't yet understand. And, and, and like I've said many times, I don't claim to proclaim a truth here. I don't uh, claim to have all of the answers. And, and there are potentially many ways in which we could achieve interstellar travel and do it in a way that it might not take five or six generations of humans continually reproducing on board. But currently, we don't have much indication of how that might happen and the laws of physics if they hold, which they are likely to do, uh, would seem to indicate that it may not be possible. And then you still have all of the issues of of mutual evolution evolving at the same time on a planet close enough that that we could contact each other, potentially visit each other, or that we could evolve at the same time and evolve the same traits, have the same primate evolution where we're upright walking uh, humans, hominoids, it's very unlikely to happen. And, and a very important point too, is if they did travel all the way across the universe to get here, why would they be so elusive in their activities? Why wouldn't they just get out and introduce themselves say, hi, we're from this and such star system and this place in the universe. We came all this way and where's your bathroom? Uh, can I get a, a cheeseburger? I've heard so much about that. <laughs> Uh, why wouldn't they do that? There, there's not much incentive to just act mysteriously and, and pick people up and do biomedical examinations in remote parts of the world and then drop them off with clouded memories. It, it seems like something we would do 
Um, and we wouldn't expect them to have the same traits as we have. So there's, there are problems with the extraterrestrial model, even beyond just whether or not we could get there. What, what are those speed limits of the universe and things like that? And I try to highlight those in the book and not just, and not just do a straw man fallacy thing where it's either the extraterrestrial or extra model. That's not at all what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to build a case around something that can actually be tested and can be backed up with actual scientific uh, evidence. Well, you're putting forward a new angle that many people have not considered. I happen to be one who has considered that, and that this is why your book caught my, and your interviews on TV caught my attention, because I haven't heard anyone else discuss this seriously. Everybody, Every time you bring this up to other researchers who are in the field, in the field of ufology, which is a cottage industry. They just say, no, no, no. They come from <laughs> from this planet, blah, 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 and X, Y, Z. And okay, well, you know, let me just discuss this possibility. But what you just said about the possibilities of, of, of human in the future having technology that we cannot comprehend today. I remember my conversation with the late astronaut Edgar Mitchell. He said to me, in just 60 years, my grandparents traveled the West in horse and buggy, and I went to the moon. Do you think that technological that technological leap will continue exponentially, or will it flatten at some point? I I would tend to think that it would continue accelerating. A lot of that is because we're we're constantly building information on information that came before. That's the, the process of the evolution of culture and understanding. Um, and when we have more people to think about things, there's more opportunities for more things to be learned more quickly. So th there's always this argument. It's referred to as a neo-Malthusian argument. <clears throat> and Thomas Malthus was sort of the original, the sky is falling, the sky is falling type guy. He looked at our... Uh, geometric growth and population size and looked at the arithmetic growth in food uh, production and saw that at some point everybody's going to starve because there won't be enough food. Our population is growing too fast. And, and that hasn't worked out to be the case. What we have now is a situation of inequality rather than insufficiency. There's enough food to feed everybody in the world, but when you have really fat people here and starving people here, it's just an issue of inequality. And in fact, our ability to produce food has kept up with population growth. It's also been geometric. He couldn't see that at the time. But the same, the same arguments against this neo-Malthusian idea of outstripping our resources and we have too many people, having more people allows more people to figure out problems that people create when we have difficulties associated with there being too many of us that also means there's more people to help figure these things out and and it's not just in staving off the end times or the the end of the world climatic collapse pollution things like that but it's also figuring out new ways to build better computers make faster computers quantum computing is probably the next thing on the horizon there So having increased intellect ourselves because we're constantly developing smarter brains, but also more brains to work to fix problems, I think will continue that. If, if we do start shooting nukes at each other, yeah, we're going to uh, set that back a little bit. And I think we'll flatline for a while, but we're likely to pick up where we left off 
not not long after that, I would think. I I can't know. I'm just speculating now, but it seems like we are likely to continue that that rapid accelerating evolution of our culture. Well, they're already well when it comes to the topic of singularity and transhumanism. They're already working on DNA computers, bio computers that instead of mm-hmm. having certain you know metals and so on, they have plants inside, like flora. Yeah. Actually, have you probably have heard that too? So, yeah, who knew? It's so cool. Like, who knew that DNA could be used for data storage? I, I was floored when I saw that. It makes so much sense. But but that's what I mean. Like, there's just people who are like, oh, I wonder if we can store information in DNA. <laughs> like, somebody thought of that, probably ridiculed by their peers because it was a crazy idea. But lo and behold, they're the smart ones, and we're all dumbasses for telling them otherwise. Well, isn't that what the whole DNA structure is all about holding yeah, it's a coding system coding system and just like you have your computer in front of you whether it's a it's an apple computer or a pc it has uh, coding zeros and, and ones zeros and ones exactly binary and you have this ability to turn things on or off could it be that we have in in our dna certain a salamander you cut a limb and it grows why can we look into that dna and maybe turn on our own so we either lose a limb or do we lose a tooth have the ability to grow it i mean the possibilities are endless and i don't mean to deviate yeah. from the topic at hand but this is just fascinating it is yeah and um, crispr technology gene manipulation it, you always have the backlash like oh we're playing god we're manipulating the human genome but i mean if we can cure diseases by fixing problems in our genetic material if we can eliminate them in the same way that we could with inoculations, vaccines, antibiotics. Why wouldn't we? If we have that technology and that understanding of the human genome, why wouldn't we fix congenital diseases or genetic diseases that affect people? I, I, I think we absolutely would. If we, if we start making weird like goat dragon babies or something like that, yeah, it's probably going to raise some red flags. But I, I think within the bounds of scientific ethics, it, it can only be a good thing. I asked this question of a professor in England a few years ago, and I said, so how long do you think we should live if we had the ability to find cures for disease and so on? He said to me, the way the planet is going, after people are not able to reproduce anymore, that should be the end of it. I mean, that's how extreme he was. Yeah. But if we, are, if we have the ability to, to extend lifespan, and you and I could maybe live to, to be 200 healthy, wouldn't that be better for society? We would be productive members of society. You could teach for another 150 years and just enlighten the world, and I could do certain things to make this society better. And it wouldn't cost the government that much because we would be healthy. Well, <laughs> I mean, I remember taking a, a class in graduate school about senescence, the, the process of aging. And what came up a lot in the course is different things related, you know, the fountain of youth. Everybody wants a fountain of youth. Sure. To me, I, I, I view it differently. I think it's selfish. I would rather just do as much as I can and get out of the way. Let, let somebody else, let the next generation come up. And, and if we leave a legacy, if we leave something that they can grasp onto, our lives persist, our work persists. Why, why, do, why does my old wrinkly self need to be there clogging up? subways and taking up space if if somebody else can do something that's better and, and do it better. So I, I don't know. I, I think I, I kind of agree with your past guest that we live, we reproduce, we 
and we get out of the way. And that's what it was for the vast majority of human history. The average age of hunter-gatherer groups was between 40 and 45 years. And that's probably how it was meant to be. It's really quite odd that we live this far past uh, reproduction. I mean, obviously men with Viagra and things can keep reproducing, <laughs> but but for the most part, humans were never meant to do that. And that's why senescence exists. That's the main reason is there's no selective advantage to continuing to persist once you reach maturity and once you pass reproductive age. So I think I think biology, I think the universe wants us to just make babies and, and die. And this last statement, and we'll get your answer on the other side, I think of the possibilities if time travel becomes a reality. First, I would think I would be, you know, again, I know I ask you that you're neither a conspiracy theorist nor a ufologist, and you didn't answer. Is is that a correct assumption? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So you leave that to me because that's why I discuss here. I'm pretty much a parapolitical researcher here. But if this was already available, and some of my guests and some witnesses say that it is already available, it would be for military purposes first. And oh, then yeah. just like everything else, you know, how many, you know, 50 years maybe, just like right now, when they use all that technology, they don't need it anymore, then boom, it's commercialized to the public. But when it comes commercialized, the first application that comes to mind is time travel tourism. Mm -hmm. Do you think those flying craft many have seen and continue to see are time travel tourists? I'll get your answer on the other side. How can people buy the book, Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon? Well, I've created a, a hub on my website. It's just an abbreviated version of the book title, idflyobj.com, I-D-F-L-Y-O-B-J.com. And it lists uh, all the different sites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo. There's an audio book available. Uh, Google Books just invited me to sell it through them, so it's available on Google Books now. Um, and that's the best place to start. There's other information, information about uh, interviews, speaking engagements, albeit the MUFON 50th anniversary, the UFO Congress in Phoenix later, and other things are being added. So I'd say go to the website. It's probably the best uh, best answer to that question. On the cover, for those who haven't seen the cover yet, it's a great cover. You have a Homo erectus, am I right? You have a human, a Homo sapiens sapiens there. Then you have an individual with a phone. I would have seen, I think, somebody looking at their phone with the hunchback. And then you yeah. have what it seems to be uh, what some people may call extraterrestrial, the gray alien being standing, correct? Yeah, I was at the... Um the McMinniman's UFO Fest in McMinnville just a few days ago. And, and somebody looked at that and said, you know, their heads are so big because they were talking on that damn cell phone. <laughs> Gave them head cancer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I had a good laugh about that one. But but yeah, it just shows the evolution of man and then interjects the extra tempestrial at the end of it. Folks, don't go anywhere. I have Dr. Michael P. Masters with me today. We have another hour. We're going to dive deeper into this very fascinating subject time travel the possibilities are endless and this term extra temporal instead of extraterrestrial think about it for a moment this is mel fabregas and you are listening to veritas see you in the member section thank you for listening to the first part of this very important veritas interview to listen to the rest and all of our material proceed to the members section or subscribe at veritasradio.com 
Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.